A brief update. It's May the 12th, 2024. I've released just two episodes of this year. My father-in-law passed away in January. He bravely fought a multitude of health issues for well over 15 years. Rest in peace, John. My wife of more than 20 years, Lisa, is remarkably strong, much more so than I. Her outlook on life is always positive and has motivated me to resume my passion project. Research for new episodes is now well underway. Stay tuned and sincere thanks for subscribing to my podcast. I'm one of the last players to get dressed. I'm putting on my socks and ready for practice. We have to go in front of Bobby Knight soon. So Michael Jordan was sitting by the bench away, and we had never met at that particular time. This is early in Olympic trials. He said, chap. I said, what's up, Mike? He said, come here for a minute. So I picked up my socks and went over there and started dressing beside Sam. He said, you from Brooklyn, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, I'm from Brooklyn, too. I said, no, you're from North Carolina. He said, no, I'm from Brooklyn. He said, I was born in Brooklyn, and at age five, we moved to North Carolina. I said, wow, I didn't know that. I said, well, you know what? That explains why you got a little shake and bake in you. (laughs) (laughs) Then you are in Australia right now. You're talking NBA basketball. You're talking great teams. You're talking great individual players. Takes it off and there's number 23. And of course, Johnny goes nuts. So I'll get goosebumps thinking about it now. I just tried to go out there and play my game. I have no idea what you're talking about, Adam. I don't like anybody. I'm not a people person. Strand, you made the pass. Yes. Christian, can you catch the ball? Yes. All the stars were aligned and all the muscles fired at the right time. And I was able to get off the ground and throw one down. I was saving that as a surprise for you. And now, introducing your host for In All Airness, Adam Ryan. Welcome to episode 48. Thanks for joining me. My website, inallairness.com. Just add a forward slash and the episode number to view show notes. In this episode, I'm happy to welcome my good mate Aaron as a co-host. We recently had the good fortune of speaking with former NCAA star Roosevelt Chapman. Personally, I was fascinated by Velvet's career. That's his nickname. We get into the origins of that in this conversation you're about to hear. He is, to this day, the all-time leading scorer in Dayton Flyers history. And in 1984, within the span of just three months, he starred in the NCAA tournament, was invited to the Team USA Olympic trials, and was selected in the NBA draft. We chat about all that, his stellar international career, and much more. Now... Onto the show. Our guest today is the all-time leading scorer and he's a legend of the Dayton Flyers. He led their amazing run to the Elite Eight in the 1984 NCAA tournament. He participated in the 1984 Team USA Olympic trials and was an NBA draft pick that same year. He enjoyed a very successful playing career in various leagues around the world. Roosevelt Chapman, thanks very much for joining us. Well, it's good to be here. Thank you. We're looking forward to chatting with you today. Roosevelt, you grew up in Brooklyn, New York. I had the pleasure of spending some time there a few years ago and really enjoyed it. What part of Brooklyn did you live in? And can you tell us about how how growing up and playing basketball in that area of New York, how it shaped you to become a star at Dayton? Well, I was raised in Brooklyn, New York, and I was raised in the section called Bedford-Stuyvesant. And that's really kind of a a hard neighborhood. Um, A lot of players came out of there before me. Connie Hawkins was one. Uh, Lloyd B. Free was another one. Walter Berry also played at St. John's and in the NBA to Spurs. Um, There's a lot of guys that came from my neighborhood. It was very interesting coming up in Brooklyn because basketball is the ideal sport to play. Um, There's not too much football. There's not too much baseball. Um, In New York City, there's not too much grass. (laughs) So so we played on the concrete. All the projects had basketball courts, and and we played on the basketball courts all day, all night. And only by the grace, it helped me to, to go to college and be the person or the player that I am today. When I was over there in 2010, I think I stayed in, uh, in Williamsburg for the most part, and it's only across the other river from from Manhattan, but the other place has a completely different feel to it than what Manhattan has. 
it's calmer on the Brooklyn side of the bridge versus the Manhattan side. It's more congested on the Manhattan side. I really enjoyed Brooklyn coming up. There was a lot of competition on the playgrounds playing ball. Um, it gave me a chance to learn a lot of things, shake and bake, a lot of crossover moves. There's a lot of um, horse games played in New York City. So your creativity as a basketball player is extremely high. So that really helped me to bring my game as it evolved, you know, later on in years. Right. You're listed in several articles that we've read at, at 6'4". What was your, your playing weight, your ideal playing weight? I was approximately about 205 pounds. Okay. Because for a player of your size, it definitely reads in comments from some of your opponents and looks on some of the YouTube clips that we've seen of your uh, your playing days, like you were a real handful down low for defenders in your your forty one point game against Oklahoma in the nineteen eighty four NCAA tournament, you repeatedly beat your man down low with some really lovely footwork and an array of spins and double clutch shots. I was always blessed with great body control. Um, there's a lot of guys that could jump higher than me but they can't stay in the air longer than me. I really can't explain it, but that's how it was. And once I found out this gift, I utilized it to my strength. There was a lot, I used to get three point plays even before they had the, the three point shot. So I had to get it the hard way back in the days, um, drawing your opponent in, uh, making them foul you, and still have enough upper body strength to kiss it off the glass for it to go in. So um, at my height, I always played against guys that was bigger than me. They always played out of position, but it got to a point where I got used to it, playing against guys 6'9", 6'8", 6'10". But I was very strong for a 6'4", and I would box them out uh, very strong and take away their center of gravity, and I always was a quick hopper. I could get to the ball before they could. So to average over 20 a game and get just about 10 rebounds a game, a double-double every night, I look at that as, um, as an accomplishment. And being able to draw that contact from the defender and get to the foul line is a, a skill in itself, isn't it? It sure is. Um, I had one of my friends text another friend, a coach, on Twitter recently, and his name is Ed Pickney. He's the coach, I believe, right now of the Chicago Bulls. He played for Villanova, beat Georgetown in 84, an 85 season. And um, he's a good friend of mine coming up. And he was a lot taller than me, a couple years younger, but but taller than me. He probably was about 6'9", six, 6'10". Six, and I was the same height at the time. And we probably was in ninth grade. And I showed him how to post up correctly, how to get to the free throw line, how to make your opponent file you, get to the line. He told somebody recently that I was the one who helped him uh, to be a low post player, you know, that he was today. And um, that made me feel really good. I did that with a lot of people because I feel if, if you learn something, you have to give it away. That's the only way you could keep it. That's really interesting. And it's uh, an unusual thing for someone of your relative size to be able to have that strength to be able to play down low so effectively. So that's very good to hear. Now we'll, we'll get to your college career very shortly and including that incredible game that you played against Oklahoma, your career high 41 points there. But I just had a quick question about your playground years, Roosevelt. Mm-hmm. I remember reading in the research for this chat that you played with or against future NBA greats on the playground, including Chris Mullen, Rod Strickland, Mark Jackson, and those sort of guys. Do you mind just elaborating a bit more on that for us, please? Sure. Those guys you just mentioned, um, they probably was a year or two behind me. So I would go to their games early. And at that time, their division was called either biddies or midgets. And mines would be seniors. So I would go early to watch them play the biddies and the midgets. And then they would stay to watch me play the seniors. And I would give them their weaknesses and the strengths that I saw. And then they would come to my game and and just um, watch me and see see how I did it so they could implement it to their game. So um, we became very good friends. And I chose them because I saw that they had they was better than the rest of their level. Mark Jackson, Rod Strickland, 
Um, like I said, Walter Berry, Chris Mullen, very good friend of mine. Um, they all had special skills. And I'm so glad that they took a little bit from me and they moved on and added to their own repertoire. That's fantastic. Very cool. Now, we'll focus on your senior season in just a moment, but in each of your first three years at Dayton, you improved regularly in each of those seasons. Do you mind just talking about the development of your game there? And I know that you've got a pretty close relationship with your coach from that time, Don Donoher. Am I pronouncing his surname correctly? That's correct, yes. Can you just talk about your first three seasons at Dayton and the gradual build to that fantastic senior season, which we'll get to in just a moment? Okay, sure. Um, every year, I believe, well, going into the University of Dayton, coming out of high school, I knew it was going to be a process, a four-step process, um, freshman, sophomore, junior, senior year. So every year, I had to strengthen my weaknesses and also strengthen my strengths. And every year, by my stats, it showed that. Um, now, how did I do that? Personally, now I do a lot of private lessons for students, uh, basketball players, girls and boys. And I always tell them, I say, only way you get better is during the off season. Now, during the season, you know, you're going to play. You're going to run a lot of routine plays over and over again. You're really not going to get better doing that. You're just going to become more comfortable at that level. Now, in the off season, that's when you work on your free throws, your jump shots, your ball handling skills, uh, doing push-ups, going to the gym, uh, strengthening your mind, your body. Every year, I went back to Brooklyn. And that's what I did. Got back to the playgrounds in Brooklyn and played and picked up a little bit from this person, a little bit from that person. And then the following season, my stats improved. So in my opinion, I worked very hard in each one of those three off seasons to get better. Yep. So it's a great work ethic there, which uh, certainly held you in good stead for sure. In your senior season, you were the only senior on the squad, if I'm not mistaken, which is quite remarkable in itself. You talked about some of your uh, statistics for that year. You had almost 22 points a game and just under 10 boards a game, but also you're a great uh, defender in terms of averaging more than one steal and one block a contest as well, particularly at that height, to still be able to go down low and get blocks and whatnot. So an incredible season. Your Dayton Flyers were 18 and 10 in the regular season, and you're right on the bubble probably in terms of the selection for the NCAA tournament, and we'll get to that in a moment. But there's a couple of standout games, or one in particular I'd like to quickly touch on if you don't mind. It was February the 18th of 1984, and your Flyers upset Tyrone Corbin and the third-ranked DePaul. It was a one-point victory, and you gave the last-second assist to your centre, who was only about six foot seven, by the way, uh, Ed Young. Right, we have a very small team, yes. Yeah, do you mind just talking about your memories of that particular game and the atmosphere? I've seen the clip on YouTube where it's maybe the last 10 seconds, it was a missed free throw. Do you mind just setting us up from there as to how the rest of the, the game played out? Sure. Matter of fact, I'll back it up a little bit further than that. Yeah. The Paul was on the line, and they were shooting, and I was on the line waiting uh, for the rebound. And I looked up at the clock, and it was two minutes ago, and we was down by seven. And I told myself, sometimes I talk to myself during a game. I said, um, chap, I said, if you're going to do anything, this is the time to start. And it seemed like that vibe just came with my teammates also. We had a couple of possessions, and we got closer. I guess we had a couple of good field goals, a couple of good defensive stops. And then going back to that free throw, I believe it was about – Four or five seconds to go, and they was on a line up by one. And one of my teammates got the rebound, and they passed it to me. And I could hear the whole crowd going, (gasps) you know. So they got the ball in the hands of the person that usually does all the scoring for the Flyers. And then I took a couple of dribbles, and then I passed the ball. And then on the other hand, I heard all the fans go, (laughs) why did he pass the ball? And I passed it to uh, my teammate, Ed Young, which was the center, small center, like you said. He turned around and he banked it off the glass and it went in. And a lot of people always ask me, said, why did you pass that ball? You know, they got it to the person who does most of the scoring for your team. But what a lot of people don't understand when you practice with a person, practice with a team all year, you know where their sweet spots on the court is at. So the fans didn't know where his sweet spot was at, but at that particular time, he was at his sweet spot, and I thought he had a better shot at making that that play. And so I gave it to him, and he he executed it, and 
it worked out great. Now, to this day, they call his shot the shot, quote unquote. <laughs> and I'm so glad he made it because if he didn't make that shot, I would have been a scapegoat. So I'm, I'm so glad every time we see each other, we talk about that particular play. That's brilliant. Yeah, that is excellent. I like that sort of stuff. And the, the celebrations afterward, there's just so much exuberance as well because DePaul at the time, I believe, were the third ranked team in the, in the nation. So a huge victory. And, and also you referred to yourself there as chap. I'd be remiss of me not to mention you have one of the great nicknames of all time that I've since learnt, which is Velvet. <laughs> How did that nickname come about? Was it something that the players dubbed you or fans? How did that sort of work? No, well, my teammates, my coach, uh, Don Donner, everybody called me Chap when I first came there, short for Chapman. But as of probably my first three games at Dayton as a freshman, I guess they saw my play and they named me Velvet. They said I played real smooth, um, never got frantic, never got upset. Uh, never got rattled, just um, kept a game face, you know, did what I had to do. So all of a sudden, Velvet came into play, and um, <laughs> Roosevelt Velvet Chapman became my nickname, my middle name. That's awesome. I love that sort of stuff. It's good to hear the some of the stories behind how these things come about. So thanks for sharing that one. I did touch on the fact that your Dayton team was maybe on the verge of being selected for the 1984 NCAA tournament. The previous season when you were a junior – your team went 18 and 10, which was the same regular season record you had in 84. So do you mind just talking about where you were or do you remember what happened on that pivotal selection Sunday when you found out that you were in the NCAA tournament, particularly as a senior in your last year with the team? I was very ecstatic when that happened. Uh, you had mentioned the year before we had the same record and I don't believe we got, got chosen for anything that particular year. I was expecting maybe the NIT again. But we had some very big wins that season. We knocked off a lot of big teams that year. Um, we were 18 and 10 regular season, but even before that, we start off not the greatest. We were seven and seven. And all of a sudden, my coach did some switching in the starting lineup. We went to a smaller team and all of a sudden we we found a chemistry and we put one game in, another game in, all of a sudden we're 18 and 10 and we, we're gelled, you know, a complete team right now, a small team, but complete. Everybody had their assignments and everybody executed well. So when we got that bid on that particular Sunday, personally, I told myself, I said, now the world is getting ready to see Roosevelt Chapman. And that's fantastic that um, you're preparing yourself and studying yourself for what would be an incredible run in that NCAA tournament, really a Cinderella story, I guess, if there ever was one, getting right through to the Elite Eight. Now, 10 of those losses you had in the regular season, I went through your schedule before we chatted today, and three of those losses were by a total five points combined. So you're very close to getting 20-plus wins for the season as well. And I believe you won 11 of your last 14 games, which obviously would have helped in terms of deciding to get you over the line to get into that tournament. Exactly. Now let's quickly just touch on the first of your games in the 1984 tourney. You went up against LSU and you had a great game yourself. You scored 29 points and your team won by eight points in that first round matchup. Um, do you mind just talking a little bit about that game and how was the difference in atmosphere and, and just the quality of play from what you'd experienced in your first three seasons without going that far? Well, we went to NIT twice during my career and almost Went to Madison Square Garden for the semifinals. We came one, one game shy of that for me going back home and playing in the garden. But when the NCAA came my senior year to an equivalent, it was, it was about to the eighth power. As far as the media, there was so much media there. It was phenomenal. It was like a whole new arena of basketball. So many more people, so many more media, so much more cameras. It put something to me that I knew I had to bring my best. We played LSU that first game, and they were very athletic. I think their front line was about 6'9 across. They played very well, but we played better. Like I said, we was a small team, but we boxed out well. We executed well. We was a patient team, a good free-throw shooting team. Um, we was very well coached. I have to lay my hands out to my coach, Donaher, one of the best coaches ever coached the game of basketball um, in college. Um, he's still a very good friend of mine, a father figure, and we talk all the time. But that was a very good game at LSU. My teammates looked for me to score, 
We all played defense well, and we came out victorious. And, and that was a very great, great game. Now, in the lead-up to the, your next game, which would be against Wayman Tisdale and the Oklahoma, is it the Sooners? Like, I've had a brain fade. Sooners, correct. Yeah, it is the Sooners, okay. Against Oklahoma, uh, you commented on how the team would try and contain Wayman Tisdale. Do you mind just talking a little bit about how the press reacted to that statement in the lead-up to that matchup? Well, let me tell you more about what happened. Um, after the game at LSU, Coach Donahue and myself, we was called uh, to the media room for the media to interview us. Mm -hmm. So all the questions were apt towards my coach, Donahue. And towards the end of the interview, one reporter said, this question is to Roosevelt. He said, Roosevelt said, um, yeah, barely beat LSU. And how do you feel about going against number two seed, Oklahoma, and All-American Wayman Tisdale? And I, I paused because I was like, how, how dare you say something like that? We just barely beat, uh, luckily beat LSU. We beat them fair and square and we outplayed them. Mm -hmm. So my re reply was, we're going to see and find out who the real All-American is. <laughs> and all the reporters, they started writing it. <laughs> <laughs> writing on their papers. <laughs> so I kind of set the stage for that game. Um, I kind of could have put my foot in my mouth, um, but by the grace, it, it went in my favor. It sure did because you had a, a monster game. Uh, Wayman had a fantastic game himself. I think he scored 36 points, but you scored a career-high 41 on probably one of the biggest stages possible at that particular time in, in such under such media spotlight as well based on those comments too. So... An incredible, incredible performance. You touched on it a little bit briefly when Aaron asked you about your ability to post up and, and score near the basket. But what are your overall thoughts some 30 years later on that particular performance, pulling out a career high game in such an important game against an All American? Well, I knew I had to elevate my game for that particular game. Oklahoma, I watched them early on TV early that season and Wayman Tuesday was a, was a man child. That what they that's what they called him, a man child. Mm -hmm. He was six nine, a huge body, probably about two hundred and seventy pounds, and he had a turnaround soft jumper. He rebounded well and he could jump well. So I knew we had to be at our best. I remember at halftime, I believe we were up by four or five points, which was good, but I wasn't satisfied. Reason why is because I had seventeen points at halftime. But Wayman Tisdale had 25 points. So I told myself, second half, I need to outscore him, and I'm going to get the victory. Come to find out, um, he finished with 36 points, and I finished with 41, and we won by, by four or five points. So that made me feel really good, especially going into the, to the next round of Sweet 16. Yeah, wonderful. In the, uh, the second half of the game, Roosevelt, with – about 19 minutes to go, Wayman Tisdale actually sprained his ankle going for a rebound and then returned to the game with 10.43 left to go in the game. An article says that he wasn't anywhere near as effective scoring, in inverted commas, only 14 points after spraining his ankle. I guess after the, the first half that Wayman had kind of paled in comparison, but I would have thought that 14 points in 10 minutes and 43 seconds was a pretty decent output on, on one foot. And I guess that shows how much of a beast Wayman was in college. Yes, he, um, believe it or not, yes, he did go out for a, a couple of minutes doing a sprained ankle, but he came right back. It didn't seem like to me it was um, gingerly because he scored a lot of points in that particular short frame of time. Anytime I sprain my ankle, I usually just tie my shoestrings up tight and keep it going. But everybody's ankle's a little different. But I thought he played well after that injury, that little injury that he had. I thought he finished the game well. It's just that we had more, more momentum at that particular time. And we executed. We was patient. We ran the clock out with our lead. I thought our performance outshined them overall. So you think that the spraining his ankle was overcooking it a little bit? Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. I could see if somebody's hobbling off of one leg just trying to finish the game because you're the best player on that team. But it wasn't yeah. like that. He was His ankle, to me, was strong enough because he had a couple of good rebounds that he really had to jump high that he got and a couple of finishes that he looked very good posting up with. So I thought he was still 
All-American Wayman Tisdale. I mentioned before about how it's an important skill in itself to be able to draw a foul from your opponents and get to the line in that game in the last five minutes and 24 seconds. The other Flyers didn't score from the field at all. Their last 14 points came from the other free throw line, including 10 from yourself. Again, showing how strong you were getting to the hole and around the basket. Was that the, uh, the plan to get to the line for easy points? No, that wasn't the original plan, but our coach taught us, take what the team give you. Take what your opponents give you. So we just took, we worked the ball around from side to side, and if we see a weakness, then we penetrate. Most of the time, I was on a receiving end of getting a ball in my sweet spot. So if I found out, if I get the ball in my sweet spot, there's nobody in the nation that could stop me. That's how I felt at that particular time. Um, I just have too much creativity to get the ball to the hole or get fouled. And I knew with my particular game to get fouled, I have to be a good free throw shooter. And I was always a very good free throw shooter. So I learned that from one of my idols coming up when I was younger. His name is Walt Frazier. He used to play with the New York Knicks. Clyde, when you were growing up, did you attend many games at Madison Square Garden? I sure did. I sure did. I had a friend, one of my mentors. He would take me to the games, and they had great, great games. You know, like Walt Frazier, Earl Monroe, Willis Reed. I was right there just about 20 games that season when they won a championship. And as a young kid, I had started having admirations that I want to um, be a hell of a basketball player. And watching them really inspired me as I got older. There's no question that the the other seventies and eighties was a fantastic era for nicknames. And you mentioned before uh, Earl the Pearl and Walt Clyde Frazier. You got the human highlight, right? Room. And of course, yeah, yours is no exception to that rule in Velvet. Yeah, really a cool era for some really cool nicknames. Yes, it sure was. There was a lot of things going on at that time. Um, I had mentioned one of my idols, also one of my good friends named World Be Free. He changed. His name used to be Lloyd Free, but he changed his name to World Be Free. Are you familiar with him? Yes, definitely. I actually have a Cleveland Cavaliers number 21 World Be Free jersey. Wow. He was one of my inspirations. He was so athletic at his height. He was probably about my height, about 6'3", 6'4", but he could jump out the gym. And he had a, a killer instinct that was unbelievable. And uh, I just loved watching him play also. And it just happened that he was also from Brooklyn. It's good to hear some of the background behind what motivated you to really want to achieve the best you could as a basketballer. So that's good to hear. Now, we'll quickly touch on your Sweet 16 appearance. After you defeated Oklahoma, you took on Detlef Schrempf and his Washington team, and you had a win by six points advancing to the Elite Eight, which is phenomenal. But just quickly, uh, what are your memories playing against Detlef Schrempf, and could you tell at that stage that he was going to be an outstanding player at the next level? Oh, yes. Out of all of our teams that we that we scouted and prepared for. It seemed to me my coach was more worried about the Washington team, more so than Oklahoma and LSU. So we really prepared. Um, we had a game scheme for Washington. That little shrimp was my assignment. I, I guarded him and he guarded me. And I knew I had to box him out, keep him off the glass. I had to limit his touches to the basketball. And over, I had to outplay him for us to win. And it worked out that way. Matter of fact, out of all those teams we played up until that point, they were the biggest team. Their front line was 6'9", six, 6'9", nine, six, nine, 7 foot. And our front line was 6'4", 6'4", 6'7". So we really had to get low to box them out well. Um, it, it takes a special team to play short and then override that against bigger opponents. Um, you have to get very low to box them out, take their legs out, things to that effect, to get the rebound. Because if you don't, they're going to get every rebound and every putback. So we were used to it, just having short teams at that particular era at Dayton. You've led me beautifully into my next question, which is <laughs> going to be about the Elite Eight matchup against Georgetown Hoyers. You couldn't get a much more dominant and imposing front line than Patrick Ewing. And I've got a mind freeze on the other guy. Is it Ralph Dalton? I think his name was. Ralph Dalton? Yeah. So to go up against Georgetown in the Elite Eight, 
with, as you mentioned, your front court being considerably smaller across the board. Right. Incredible effort, really. And one of the things that stood out to me immediately when I saw some highlights of this game in the last couple of days on YouTube, you were in the jump ball against Patrick Yui. Yes. <laughs> yes. Even though I was, they had a couple of guys taller than me on my team, I could out-jump everybody on my team. So at times, they would put me at half-court to jump against the set. <laughs> yeah, incredible. Um, so... Can you talk about that matchup in the Elite Eight? Georgetown would win by 12 points in the end. Ewing had 15 points and you were held to 13 points. Obviously, it's tough to try and score over the outstretched arms of Patrick Ewing, which is probably the understatement of the decade. But what are your thoughts on that particular game and just the incredible run that you guys had to get to the Elite Eight of the NCAA tourney, Roosevelt? Well, just to back up a little bit, at that time, I think there's about 65, 60 plus teams in the NCAA now. Mm-hmm. Now, back in 1984, they, there was only 52 teams and we was the 52nd team to make it. So we was the very last team to make the NCAA that year. And for us to go all the way to the final eight, technically, I like to call it the final five because it was the last game of the final eight. So it was against us in Georgetown with question mark who's going to go to the final four. Georgetown had a complete team. They had a great front line. They had a, a great ball handler. And um, Michael Jackson was the point guard at that time. They had David Wingate. Um, they had another guy named Billy Martin played in the pros and Patrick Ewan. They also had a, a strong guy. He, didn't, he only played one year at Georgetown, but his name was Michael Graham. And he was a very strong power forward. So overall, they had the best team in the NCAA, in my opinion. So if we had to lose to somebody, why not lose to the champs? Definitely. Roosevelt, you get the feeling, or I get the feeling from having read some articles and uh, and seen some comments from different people who played against him in, in college that Patrick Ewing's size and length, I've seen or heard of him uh, compared to an octopus, that he really kind of scared the heck out of people in college. Yes, his length, he covers so much ground on the court. And he's very well coached by his coach, John Thompson. And I could tell his coach taught him to just extend your arm. You don't have to leave your feet. Don't be vulnerable to get in foul trouble. So he'll run up to you, just body you, and put your put his hands up, straight up. And he stayed out of foul trouble most of that season because he was well coached by John Thompson, who was another a former center with the Boston Celtics back in the days. So um, they were very well coached at the big man position. And it seemed like he was an octopus because his hands, his length, his height was everywhere. <laughs> and you need a player like that in a hole to, pro- to protect the hole. Mm, agreed. Yeah, very apt description there. Now, just in the days following the NCAA championship game, which Georgetown would ultimately win, uh, I think it was 74, or I've read reports of 72, players were invited to be part of the 1984 Olympic basketball trials, and Roosevelt, you were one of those select guys. Before the invites were actually sent out, did you actually feel that on the back of your great performance in the tournament that you'd be one of the guys taking part? Oh, definitely. Definitely. I I thought I played extremely well. Um, sometimes I look in the archives and it said that our run in NCAA that particular year in 1984 was the top 10 Cinderella team of all time. Hmm. And that made me feel very good that I played a part in that. And I thought I, I could have been a member of the 1984 Olympic team that particular year too. They had a lot of talent coming out that year. Um, I'm, I'm just glad that we took the goal that year. Yeah, for sure. And we've got a few questions we'd love to touch on about the, the trials, if you'd be kind enough to uh, entertain those. Sure. Yeah, fantastic. So um, just before we actually got to the trials themselves, I think right around that time as well, you took part in an, an all-star college basketball game, which was dubbed the Super Shootout 3 in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, according to some Google articles that I found talking about this uh, before we chatted today. It was like a USA All-Stars team up against the Big Ten and Pac-10 seniors, and you were part of the USA team. Do you remember that game, and, and what do you recall from that in particular in the lead-up to just before the trials taking place? Um, You know what? That particular All-Star game, I vaguely remember because everybody had me on their All-Star teams at that particular time. 
I was running around from all-star game to all-star game um, from day to day at that particular time. Just got back from Hawaii at the Haloa Classic, and I knew that I had to go to the Olympic trials in Bloomington a couple weeks later, and I believe there was another all-star game, the one you're talking about, the Super Shootout 3 in Iowa. That was a, a very good very good tournament, um, not quite like the Aloha Classic, but um, it had a lot of good, lot of good talent, a lot of good coaches participating in that tournament. Sure. Now, Aaron, did you want to ask a question here? Uh, yeah, Roosevelt, I've got a few questions surrounding the other trials themselves. What was the accommodation set up during the other trials? Did you have to share rooms with other players? And are you able to share any stories with us about spending so much time with these guys in close quarters? Sure. Um, my roommate was Antoine Carr, played at Wichita State, mm-hmm. um, played at Utah and a few other teams in the NBA. He was my roommate and we became very good friends. But one of the best stories that I can recall during Olympic trials wasn't even on the court. It was in the locker room. I'm one of the last players to get dressed. I'm putting on my socks, get ready for practice. Uh, we have to go um, in front of Bobby Knight soon. So Michael Jordan was sitting by the bench away, and we had never met at that particular time. This is early in Olympic trials. He said, chap. I said, what's up, Mike? He said, um, come here for a minute. So I picked up my socks and went over there and started dressing beside Sam. He said, you from Brooklyn, aren't you? I said, yeah. He said, I'm from Brooklyn, too. I said, no, you're from North Carolina. He said, no, I'm from Brooklyn. He said, I was born in Brooklyn, and at age five, we moved to North Carolina. I said, wow, I didn't know that. I said, well, you know what? That explains why you got a little shake and bake in you. (laughs) (laughs) And we became very good friends after that also. That's a classic. I love that sort of stuff. <laughs> and we know how much MJ loves his roots and guys that are attached to his his past, you know, from his days at North Carolina or yeah, and whatnot. So to know that you were also born in Brooklyn, yeah, he would have loved you straight away, man. And further on, during that Olympic trials, coming to find out we had to guard each other every day because we played the same position. So we guarded each other every day. And then if we played against a national team from Yugoslavia or, or Czechoslovakia, whatever, he would start the game and I would be his backup. We became quite close. There was a lot of dunking on each other. I think he's got he got one or two more than I did on him. He got a few more dunks on me than I did on him. <laughs> That's great. Well, I know that one of your nicknames as well was also Dr. Dunk. Yes, that was um, my Brooklyn name coming out of high school. That's um, they, they named me that because I was hard to box out. Um, I always had a, a maneuver to get around somebody who's trying to box me out. So I was a, a very good offensive rebounder. In high school, I averaged 21 rebounds a game. Wow. <laughs> that's that's so, Moses Malone-esque, that sort of stuff. <laughs> yes, yes. So I have a knack for the ball, um, rebounding, quick jumping. And um, for six foot four, I probably – I came very close to getting 1,000 rebounds at the University of Dayton. I think it was 950-something, very close. Mm. Impressive numbers, right? Who were some of the more – more vocal guys on the court during the trials? Um, one of my other good friends uh, from New York City also, from Queens, uh, Vern Fleming, played at Georgia with the Indiana Pacers. Um, Chris Mullen was there too, another good friend of mine. Um, very vocal, had a lot of leadership qualities, and he's got a very pure jump shot. Um, but they were very, very vocal. And also have one more other story with John Stockton. We became good friends along with Charles Barkley also. But John Stockton, I played on his team several times in practices, and he would get the ball in, in the middle, and we have a semi-fast break, and I would fill the lane, and he would give it to me, and I would finish either dunk it or finish it off the glass or get an N1. And after about three games, he told me, he whispered in my ear, he said, man, he said, you're the best wing player finisher i've ever seen and that made me feel really good but i think he changed it a couple years later bet one of his teammates Carl Malone. <laughs> that must be one of the other cool stories that you have though knowing what john stockton became in the nba being the all-time assist leader and whatnot saying that you were filling the lanes for john stockton back in the 84 
Olympic trials. Yeah, he was a, a very smart ball player. I knew he had a lot of promise in the future, but I had no idea it was going to be to that degree. But he just, I could tell he's one of those person that has my philosophies. You only get better in the offseason. And I could tell every year he came back at the start of the preseason, he worked very hard in the offseason. And he came across as one of those guys that really had that killer instinct when he played as oh, well. Definitely. He sure did. Was there anyone that missed the cut back to 32 players that surprised you considering how well they had played in the first five days of, of the trials? And you were allowed to include yourself in this as well. <laughs> I thought Charles Barkley should have made the team. But there was a guy who impressed me a lot. He didn't he didn't make the team, but in practices, he impressed me because he wasn't even a college player. They had imported him from high school. His name was Danny Manning. And for his height, about 6'8 at that time, he could handle the ball. He had a nice mid-range jump shot, consistent. He played smart. I was very impressed with him, especially being a young guy, about three or four years younger than me. If he was anything like he was in the NBA, he was definitely going to have been a very versatile player even back then as a high school kid. Yes. To me, he had um, he was like a, a point forward, like LeBron James. Um, he could handle the ball. Um, like I said, he had a nice jump shot. He played extremely smart. He was a decent passer. I was very impressed at his height that he could do so many things with the ball. Do you still have your practice gear? From the tryouts? <laughs> um, I have it in storage in my archives in New York City. Yes, I still have it. Yes. <laughs> okay, well, you need to do us a favor. And next time you're anywhere near it in New York City, can you please do us a favor and tweet us a picture of it? Because we would <laughs> love to see that. <laughs> I sure will. I sure will. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, that, that's awesome. Now, um, Roosevelt, I think the way the tryouts worked in the first four or so days, you had two or three practices each day before there was then a couple of double header games on the Saturday and Sunday before Bob Knight and the coaching staff decided who would make the final 32. Do you mind just talking about some of the things that you were asked to do in those four or so days leading up to the exhibition games that were in front of the huge crowd at Assembly Hall? Well, that particular game, I was asked to, to score. Um, that's what I've done all my life, and they knew I was a scorer. Um, <laughs> this particular game, um, they had they divided up the teams into two two groups. Like Jordan's team was one on one side, and Sam Perkins' team was on the other side, and, and he just divided them. And I remember that particular game. It was a packed crowd, and I might have played. I believe I played 15 minutes and I scored 14 points coming <laughs> off the bench. And I, I played, I played well, matter of fact, but there were so many players on that particular court that particular day that played well or didn't play well, but they had a lot of, lot of talent. Um, it was a very hard decision to get, um, 12 guys out of all the whole nation, 77 guys. And I could imagine that was a, a difficult decision for Bobby Knight and his committee. That was something that we definitely read about several times in, in the articles for researching for our chat today was how much of an issue, as you just said, Bobby Knight had in cutting down the amount of players to finally get it back down to to 12, just because of the, the uh, array of talent that he had to choose from. I believe he cut a couple of players like, um, like I said, myself, Charles Barkley, John Stockton. Um, he, he more or less replaces with big guys. They were Joe Klein, John Konkak, and Jeff Turner. Um, they all 6'11", 7 foot, and um, they had a very big team. After Patrick Ewan, Wayman Tisdale, Sam Perkins, uh, Michael Jordan, Vern Fleming, and uh, Chris Mullen, really anybody after that, um, it, it really to make a difference because they had <laughs> yeah. enough right there to win the goal. Yeah, I can understand. It was a, a team loaded with incredible talent. Now, we'll jump ahead to the NBA draft. In 1984, you were selected in the third round. I think you were number 54 overall by the Kansas City Kings, who the following season would become the Sacramento Kings. In the lead-up to the draft, what 
teams showed interest in you, Roosevelt, and did you work out for many other teams prior to the draft itself? Sure. Um, there was Portland, Portland Trailblazers. Uh, they were very interested in me, uh, the Phoenix Suns. I probably could have got drafted higher, but I went to these All-Star games that you had mentioned earlier mm-hmm. that dropped my draft number. Leading up to those All-Star games, I always wanted to play in a lower class. It said, end of my junior year, all these other All-Star games, I wanted to play because you get a lot of exposure with a lot of general managers there, a lot of coaches there. But in my particular case, I played too well in the NCAA. So only thing I had to do is just don't play, just wait for the draft. And even Brent Musburg on national TV said um, there's definitely a high first-round draft pick in Roosevelt Chapman. So instead of going top 10, I went 54 because I played in these all-star games, and they switched my position from small forward to guard. And I just wasn't used to bringing the ball up court at that particular time. Uh, I always had my guards bring the ball up court, and they give it to me in my sweet spot at the hash mark or posting up. So it was a little different. I kind of exposed myself, and they saw that, and that's why my draft went down. Well, I really appreciate you being open and honest there. And the clip that you're referring to with Brent Musburger, I just watched that last night. I found an interview on YouTube with you and Don Donaher. You were chatting with Gary Bender and... Uh, Billy Packer. Yeah, Billy Packer, that's it. And just before he crossed over to you guys who were on the court after your win against LSU, I think it was, he did mention that you're a, a lock for the first round. So um, it's interesting and, and I really appreciate you being open to sort of say why you think that might have actually changed. Right, right. Even that interview was Billy Packer. He was talking to me on the side and he said, um, he was about to get interviewed, Don Donahue and myself. He said, Rosie, he said, you always push your opponent going for the rebound around his hip part and you never get called for the foul. <laughs> and I told him, I said, that's a pro move, Billy. <laughs> and he said, I like that. When we get on the camera, you say that. I like that. <laughs> and I, that's what I said too when we got on the camera. So uh, Billy Packer and I, we got a pretty good relationship at the time. Uh, I have so much CBS stuff that they took me to the CBS room after the game and gave it to me. I still have the banners in my storage room today. That's great. Roosevelt, what was it after you got selected by the Kings, number 54 overall, what led to you never playing a game with the Kings? That particular year with that particular team, um, was very interesting. There was nobody on the team really with guaranteed contracts. On that particular team, you had point guard was was Larry Drew. Uh, LaSalle Thompson was the center. Um, Mishaw that played with um, Olajuwon in college, he was the power forward. We didn't have the best system at that particular time. And then come to find out, the management part was looking to move, and they told us nothing at that particular time. We had a, a, a bad season. I just look at that as a, it was an experience for me. And then after that, I went overseas, and I had a, I had a great career overseas. I won five championships and six scoring titles overseas in a 10-year period. I do miss the NBA. I wish I would have would have had more success in there. But college level, I'm a, still a legacy and in Dayton and overseas, a lot of people still remember me. So uh, overall, I just love the game of basketball. And now I just try to help students, help players to make their games better. I'm glad that I chose basketball as a career. As are we. <laughs> so when you were still at your almost at your playing peak, you chose to play professionally overseas. Um, do you mind just perhaps touching a little bit on some of the countries where you experienced some of the success that you're talking about? Because I find it fascinating that you forged yourself a really successful career outside the USA and you achieved so much over there, but not enough people know about some of the things that you achieved and myself and Aaron, I'm sure, included. Do you mind just touching on your experience in general and, and some of the great moments that you had during that 10-year span professionally? Sure. Um, I played in Italy, France, Spain, Belgium, a um, few years in Sweden. I really love Sweden. Won uh, two championships there for a team called Alvik. And um, 
won the scoring title. Um, I had a very good time overseas. At those particular countries where I played at, um, some of them even have tile on the floors. It's a little different from the USA. Um, some of the floors are tile. I played in one court. It had carpeting. <laughs> wow. So it was completely different from what I'm used to. But I love the passion that the Europeans uh, fans had. Um, they treated us like kings over there. Nice flats that we had, cars, and we traveled a lot. We traveled a lot. I, I was always blessed to play with cup teams. So within your season you play, you also play home and away with another country. For an example, um, I'm playing in Sweden one year, and you play home and away with another country. So let's say we play against Hungary. Uh, we go there, play one weekend, then the following weekend we come back and play at my court. And whoever wins by the most points, then you go to the next round and you do the same thing. So um, it was very interesting. I did a lot of extensive traveling. I've been to countries like uh, Latvia, Syria, uh, <laughs> Libya, Estonia, countries that I would never have thought going there. And basketball uh, gave me a chance to um, see the world. And I I'm very fortunate to have done that. That's fantastic. Roosevelt, there's no question, mate, that you left a legacy with particularly your college career, but also your, your pro career, but also, as I mentioned to you before, that you were the first person in mankind to have played basketball in every country on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> I feel honoured that um, I could tell my players, my future players, that I do private basketball lessons with or coach, that I got a chance to see the world been to every state in America, and that only came from basketball. Just being that you, the best that you can be, uh, give all that you can give, and things happen. And people want your services. And I was very fortunate in my basketball career to go so many different places and show my basketball skills. And a lot of people, they, they still remember, and that feels really good. Just like this particular time a few weeks ago in Memphis, um, they just did an article on me at the University of Dayton magazine, and the writer just sent me a, a draft, rough draft of the article that's coming up in June. And it said at the beginning, it says, Roosevelt Chapman walked the streets of Memphis, Tennessee, and was just as popular as Elvis. <laughs> <laughs> Ultimate when I read that, I was so ecstatic. Took about a thousand pictures <laughs> with the young fans at Dayton um, that never seen me but just heard of me. And then now they got a chance finally to see me, and they were just taking pictures after pictures after pictures. Back 30 years ago, it wasn't pictures. We didn't have too many cellular phones, so I had to sign autographs. Okay. But now it's pictures now. Next thing I know... Um, it's on Twitter, Facebook, <laughs> Skype. <laughs> that's right. So, that's right. Yeah. So technology has really advanced and it made this 30 years better than 30 years ago. It made, um, the March Madness at University of Dayton that much more fun for me. Yeah. I can understand fully. And, uh, just a couple more quick questions for you, if you don't mind. You've been very generous with your time and we really do appreciate the time you've afforded us so far. Uh, you mentioned that. Well, actually, you haven't mentioned yet. You, are, I know that you are a teacher, and you've been a teacher for many years. Yes, I'm a primary school teacher or elementary school teacher here in Australia. Oh, have been for about five or six years, um, and now I'm just doing relief teaching around the area. But I am a teacher. But I know that you've been recently working the last few years in South Dakota, if I'm correct. That's correct. Yes. Yeah. So, so how often are you reminded of your hoops career by either fellow workmates or even parents of the? of the kids you're teaching or even the kids themselves, given that, as you just mentioned, technology's advanced so much and people can just head to Google now and type in a few keywords and they find out details about your life from those years gone. My students really get a kick out of it watching YouTube videos of me. When I first got there four years ago, I tried to keep a low profile. I wanted the students not to just talk about basketball because anytime they find out that I played pro ball, they want to talk about basketball and just get get away from the education part. And I really don't like that. There's a time for everything. So, but 
after a while, I couldn't hide it no more because they will Google. They find out your first name and they Google you. <laughs> and then all these pages come up. And then, uh, then you got conversations, you know, after conversations. So um, I really enjoy I really enjoy educating young students. I work on a reservation, Native Indian uh, reservation. And um, one of my friends several years ago asked me to come out to the reservation out here in South Dakota and help them coach because um, they love basketball, but they don't have any coaches to come out and show them, implement certain skills for them. So um, I took a chance, a leap of faith, and I came out and I, I really enjoy it. Um, this is a great landscape, beautiful country up in the Black Hills. Uh, I was just at Mount Rushmore last weekend and Crazy Horse uh, Mountain. Um, there's a lot of sites out here and um, beautiful country. And it's a big difference from Brooklyn, New York. I can imagine that for sure. <laughs> I have no doubt about that. Uh, just one last question that I have before I might just ask if Aaron has anything else to follow up with to finish with. Um, earlier this year, the Dayton Flyers made it to the Elite Eight Again, in the NCAA tournament, it was the first time since 1984 that uh, they made an appearance. Now, do you mind just talking quickly about the experience of watching the school that you starred in uh, 30 years ago enjoy a very similar run to what you had achieved also? It was very similar. Um, they're a small team compared to other uh, teams that they played against. Um, they were quick. They moved the ball around. When I was watching them play against Stanford in the Sweet 16, they moved the ball extremely well um, from side to side, um, breaking the team down on each possession and, and getting an open man. I was very impressed with them. There was a lot of similarities from my team 30 years ago to the team 2014, Dayton Flies, that was in the NCAA. I was very impressed with them. I was impressed with their coach, but had them to play that way, moving the ball, sharing the ball. Very good. Only contrast, my team versus their team, um, anybody could have been the leading scorer on that particular day. That's how they played all year. But when I played 30 years ago, most of the plays were apt towards me. So, um, <laughs> so that's the only contrast. But everything else is about the same. Two small teams, and they have played with a lot of heart, and they excelled. As a teacher now, your students knowing what you did on the basketball court, do you feel that you, you garner their attention a bit more in class? Like, Do they pay you a bit more respect and go, oh, yeah, Mr. Chapman was a star in college basketball and has played all over the world. So do you feel that they pay you a bit more respect in class? Yes, I do. There's a couple of my colleagues, and sometimes they'll come either look through my window in my class, or even a couple of them have came inside of my class, and they say that, he said, Mr. Chapman, he said, the kids act totally different in your class than my class. <laughs> so I think that respect, <laughs> that respect uh, from a basketball career, and also I demand respect as a teacher. Of course, of course. And um, I, I, I think all those play a, a part. And uh, I, I'm truly grateful for them. I'm truly grateful for my background that I could connect both of them together and hold their attention. Excellent. Great answer. The uh, the last thing that I wanted to, to, want to say to you, Roosevelt, was that, that travel and, and seeing the world is a tremendous uh, passion of my own and for you in your your situation to have travelled whilst playing the sport that you love. Yeah, you've obviously been very, very fortunate and it's been a big thrill to have, have spoken to you today, mate. Well, thank you. I, I really enjoyed talking with you also. You brought back some memories that some of them I forgot and you you resurfaced them. And it, it, I feel really good right now talking about it. And thank you so much for having me on your podcast. It's an absolute pleasure, Roosevelt. And yeah, thanks again for taking almost an hour chatting with us and, and connecting. It's been fantastic. And uh, all the best. We'll be in touch as soon as the episode's right to go. Okay. You have a good day out there, okay? We will do. Thanks, Roosevelt. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Thanks again, Roosevelt. Aaron and I were honoured to chat with you. I encourage you to interact with the show. You can suggest topics for future episodes or guests you'd like to hear conversations with. I welcome your voicemail comments or questions on my website or Facebook page. 
Worldwide on iTunes, the show currently has 36 reviews and 41 five-star ratings. And on Stitcher, there are two reviews and two five-star ratings. So thanks again for that. Thanks for your continued support of my podcast. If you do add a review, I'd love to mention your name in a future episode. Your ratings and reviews are like a John Stockton pass to a cutting Roosevelt Chapman at the 1984 Olympic Trials, the ultimate assist. It helps me to reach a wider podcast audience, and in turn it gives you, the listener, more opportunity to hear conversations with great guests. As always, you can subscribe to my show in various ways, in allandis.com slash iTunes. Alternatively, add it to your Stitcher playlist, in allandis.com slash Stitcher. My RSS feed appears in the right-hand sidebar of my website. You can also subscribe to the show on Player FM, TuneIn Radio, and many other podcatchers. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show and share my web address with your friends and colleagues in allairness.com. Check out the podcast archive for plenty more episodes with high-profile guests. Follow me on Twitter at inallairness. Please add your like to the show's social hub, facebook.com slash inallairness. Join me next time for another edition of the show.